On the Empire Podcast this week, we talked to the dawn of the Planet of the Apes himself, Mr. Andy Serkis, and Kevin Feige, a.k.a. Mr. Marvel, drops by for a chat about Guardians of the Galaxy and Edgar Wright quitting Ant-Man. All that plus usual movie news and nonsense on the movie podcast that queued up for over two hours for tickets this morning and didn't get anywhere, so now we feel your big screen pain, believe me. Hello, Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Once again, we are just three this week just three but nevertheless we are bolstered by the return of a woman who is the world's number 6918th supernatural fan and the world's number 721st fan of dragons but put them all together what do you get the world's number one fan of supernatural dragons is Helen O'Hara hello as opposed to realistic dragons which are a different thing very different thing okay. indeed yeah Komodo ones huge huge things and also you just heard him there is a man who is in the top 10% of people the world over who love film facts and is 83.4% likely to drop you one during the recording of a pod drop you a film fact that is not anything else in fact that goes up to 85% if it's recorded on a Thursday before noon as this is it's Ali Plum hello hello how are you I'm very good is that a film fact what were you queuing up for I want to know as well uh, tickets to see uh, Liverpool Oh, is that, is that a film? It could be. It could be. It's 90 minutes long. Does it have a really it, sad ending? It involves, it, yeah, it <laughs> usually does. It usually does. And I got nowhere uh, oh. because their ticketing system is, can I say this, shambolic. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I got tickets and went to see Shakespeare in Love last night in the theatre. It theater. doesn't make me feel better, Helen. Well, it should make you feel better. You should be pleased for my triumph. If it makes you feel better, here's a bit of my own uh, incompetence. <laughs> But last week, um, I, I, for some reason, and I've watched the film so many times, I have no idea, but for some reason I referred to Tanaka from good old You Only Live Twice as a woman. And I don't know why I did that. Oh, and yeah. somebody called me out on it and they were absolutely right. And not one of us picked you up in it either. So that's, I know, I know. It's crazy. Uh, I do have one other thing. Somebody made a great joke when I had my... We had a little rant about Transformers 4. And I was just like, why is there a truck inside the cinema? And Will Malone at Movie Malone said, well, it must have been a drive-in. Hashtag here all week. Good joke. Well done. There we go. Excellent news. Also, some people, last week we did the whole thing, didn't we, about movie families, acting families, and some people suggested some things, uh, some oversights. The Coppolas was one, I guess. I mean, if you want to include some guy called Nick Cage and Jason Schwartzman. Indeed. Who's part of that gang. But and I- who can forget Sophia Coppola's um, immense performance in The Godfather Part 3. Immense. Helen, I couldn't have used a better adjective. Immense. Her performance was immense the dreadful yeah there's uh, also a few people who sent some stuff in yes uh, Said at Said Alex says can't believe you didn't mention the Skarsgårds Stellan Alexander Bill and Gustav Bill and Gustav you're making these people up um, Vampire Bill I don't think they're related no I think I think I think there is a Bill uh, there is a Bill Skarsgård there is I'm, I'm aware I was, of him I was being facetious he's, he's in something that I, I was only aware of this week but Gustav Gustav, really? You talked about the Barrymores, right? I wasn't here. We did talk about the Barrymores. Uh, the Redgraves. Oh. And Nikki Alexandri says, Catching up the Emperor podcast, you guys forgot the Redgrave family in your discussion of film acting families, given that one of them is Julie Richardson of Event Horizon fame. I am mortified. Yeah, I you prostrate are. myself before William Weir and I ask for forgiveness. Uh, naked, eyeless William Weir and ask for forgiveness. Uh, right, let's move on to your questions. Uh, here are some questions. All from Twitter this week, at Lion-O32, or maybe it's like <laughs> Retch32, maybe it's Lion-O32. Thundercats, ho! Hey, come on, steady. Family show. Uh, says, if you could only ever write one more feature for Empire, what would your dream feature be? I love any question that goes like this. If you could dot, 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 what dot, dot, dot would you do? 
I just love it. I asked Joel McHale a question the other day. He presents the soup and obviously he's in community. And I asked him how many times have someone said to you, if you were a soup, what soup would you be? And he said, happens all the time and I'm a gazpacho. <laughs> of course he is. He's so cool he's and so, spicy as so well. So damn cool. So to answer your question, I really have a great answer for this. The trouble is, is there's a chance if everything comes together that it could conceivably happen. So we've got to decide, do I reveal my dream? Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Because let's be honest, in this world that we live in, it's never going to happen. But next year is the 15th anniversary of one of my favourite films of all time. Okay, so 2015, so that means we're going back to the year, hang on, 2000. Amazing (laughs) math skills. Thank you. Do you want to just double check (laughs) your work? Let's give me a second. So you're thinking that 2015 is how many years after 2000? Um, uh, Carry the one. Seven. 15 15 years amazing so what film that I absolutely love and bring up quite a lot on this podcast was released in 2000 me myself and Irene that is so so unbelievably colossally not the right answer unbreakable gladiator no it is high fidelity high fidelity high fidelity Yes, uh, yes, yes. Lovely high I fidelity. want to reunite uh, Bruce Springsteen with a guitar and I'll put him in a room and we'll just have a chat. Uh, no, my idea is to get the three record store clerks slash owners, uh, there's only one owner, of name the record store. Go ahead, what is it? Oh my God. I oh my don't, God. I only saw it once. It's an English joke that makes no sense. Oh God. In yeah, yeah, uh, the Chicago set adaptation of Dick Hornby's book. Oh my God. You're going to kick yourself, Liverpool fan. Uh, well, as a Liverpool fan, I'm 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 drawn away from the Cornby's work. Let me see. I, I know this. The answer is. Is this a film fact? No. Championship final. Final championship final. Anyway, That's so weird. I want to reunite the two guys you do remember, Jack Black and John Cusack, and the guy who loves Green Day, Todd Luiso. Yes. Amazing. And I want to get. I want to get right. I really, really hope I can make this happen. I want to get John Cusack in the big awful jumper. Mm-hmm. And I want him. I mean, obviously, the ideal thing would be have Tim Robbins there and them just beating the living crap out of him, and his teeth are just flying out of his mouth. That's not going to happen. I'll accept. <laughs> I'll accept the three of them there, what? just chilling out and just asking them all these questions. I have because every time I'm going through any kind of emotional problem, which is mainly every other week, high fidelity. You're crying right now. Well, I've managed to perfect this great trick, which is totally audio-free crying. It's very good. It is very it's good. It's very, very affecting. Yeah, the, the uh, tears are a little distracting, but, you know. Because they're projectile tears. Yeah. And I've it's, const- we're soaked. I've got to constantly rehydrate. I just want to talk to them about how it's affected their careers, which I guess it has a lot, because I think if I were to ever meet John Cusack, my first question would be, okay, top five favourite, you know, it just, <laughs> there must be people on the street go, okay, top five favourite me's. Hi, John. Uh, I'm your biggest fan. Mm. I just absolutely adore that film. Uh, and I think that would be a nice way of... That's doing so nice. Also, would, you, would you talk to Stephen Frears? Or, or... I've actually made the decision to not do that. Interesting. Why? Because I think it's better... I think I'm you've more... read previous interviews with Stephen Frears. Can I be blunt? <laughs> yes, I have. No, I think, I think for the reunion, that's who you want. And for the photo shoot, that's who you want. And if you have Agreed. Stephen Frears in the background, it's a bit like, oh, and it's... The director. Oh, yeah. Agreed. I mean, I'll get in touch with Nick Hornby because, you know, if there's an excuse, I'll take it. But that's my grand plan, and I'm sure it's never going to happen, but I'm going to give it my best crack. And I don't want to invade Nick's turf. Yeah. I know he's Mr. Reunion. 
Uh, yeah. which is like Mr. Nanny, but more boring. But that's that's my plan. And th- if that were my last feature, I would I would leave the next day and be very happy. Absolutely. That's a good one. That is a very, very good one. So, fucking Ian Guy. I love that moment. Oh, God. So good. Oh, my God. So that- good. I need to revisit that film. I don't think I've seen it since it came out. I saw it in the double bill. Uh, cinema in Lisburn in Northern Ireland, with uh, along with Gone in 60 Seconds. Wow, nice double bill. There is a double bill. Can I ask you, have you seen Evil Dead 2 yet? No. I hear it's very good. I is hear it, it's is good. it good? Is it good? Look, I don't know. Uh, my dream feature would be, you know, you can. I have come very, very close to pulling off some big ones for Empire. That That's I what I hear, actually. I yes, on the comment boards that I won't reveal, uh, just in case they do happen again. Uh, but yeah, there, there's been some very interesting. I've come so close to big reunions. So close. It's very hard. There's like moving parts and people who live in different cities and you have to kind of orchestrate everything and when big movie stars are involved and they have a very very tight window in their schedule and then people stop replying to your emails and you hang outside their apartments for four months and end and you start crying at them and they seem to get really weird and freaked out by that well, it's because of the projectile tears again it's really it, I, you I know, they wear silk it stains I should stop helping you actually it does t- <laughs> you yes. know you're in trouble when you're trying to organise a reunion and your last attempt and it is one that you're really going for is just tindering near where they live <laughs> and just praying that Alec Baldwin will pick up the bloody messages that you uh, can't get because you haven't matched yet. Also, you know, it, it, reunions get tricky at a certain point as well because, it, not to put too fine a point on it, but people die. You know, you reunite the Magnificent yeah. Seven at the moment. That's going to be tricky. I know. It's it's difficult to... I've always wanted to do a Some Like a Hot reunion. I'll be honest, that's getting tough. It's really, really tough to find them all. Yeah, well, nobody's perfect. <laughs> if I hadn't said that, would you have been more or less annoyed with me? What? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I would have no. I would have said something horrendously wrong. So no, it was it was it was a good line on which to end. I would go for yeah. I, I'm not going to go to Evil Dead Two Event Horizon. I would hang out in Sean Connery's house with his knowledge, not a Gary Busey thing. It, what his knowledge out? Yeah, his his knowledge that I was there. Okay. And I would hang out and I would you know do the definitive Sean Connery career interview experience and I would go play golf with him. And Sam Jackson would fly in in a private helicopter and we'd all have the best, the best time. I would give you all of my life savings. I would give you all of them if you did the entirety of that day-long interview. In, in, in a Sean Connery voice. <laughs> and I want you to include the Sean Connery voice with every single thing you do. So when you open the fridge, you need to do an impersonation of Sean Connery opening a fridge. Ah, uh, what's in here? That's Heineken. amazing. Wow. And I just I, have a vision yeah. of you and Sean Connery and Samuel Jackson holding hands and skipping across green fields full of daisies. Helen, right did now. you incept me last night? Because <laughs> that's exactly I what did. I dream about um, on most oh. nights. Uh, you know, I, I could interview Sean Connery on a ride on mower, you know, while I, I do his do his garden. Uh, so, Sean, you keep your grass rather short. And he goes, yes, that could be misconstrued. Let's move on, shall we? So, oh, there you go. Let's move on. Slap out of it. Uh, all right, here's a question from Simeon Rousel at Simeon Rousel. Apologies if I mispronounced your name. In light of the absolutely splendid boyhood, what are your favourite examples of actors slash characters aging on film? So, I wasn't sure about this question. Are we talking about actors who have aged well? No, I think it means over the course um, of a film. Over the course of a film, they were young at one point, and then twenty years later, they are the same actor playing the same character, but they've aged twenty years. In Barney's version, they did this, and it's a really tricky thing. Barney the dinosaur. 
No, not that version. Oh. Uh, no, the movie Barney's version, uh, Rosamund Pike has to age. Oh, Barney's 20, version. 20, okay. 20 years, I think, and I think so does obviously Barney, who's played by Paul Giamatti. Yeah, sometimes it works, mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't. I can answer this question by not mentioning a film. Okay, yeah. Recently, I thought True Detective did this amazingly well. It goes from 1995, mm. 2012, and a little bit after. And in between all of this and around all of this, Matthew McConaughey was doing Dallas Buyers Club. I think, and he's very skinny. But they do a lot of great work with makeup and some fantastic thatching, especially, and, and kind of fake beer gut stuff, mm. with Woody Harrelson's hair. Really, really works. Yeah, I mean, there's a certain amount of these guys are just too handsome to ever really age badly. But I yeah. really believe it. They do a lot of fine work on the uh, eyes, little yeah. crow's feet, and that really makes a difference. Then again, it's HBO, and they've just got money pouring out of their eyes like I do tears. Yeah, again, can you just like point that in the other direction? Sorry, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll look at the corner again. Thanks. HBO crime money. <laughs> it's like the ATM from Superman 3. It's it's insane. I, I mean, one that comes to mind is uh, X-Men The Last Stand, which is not a film that we often mention to praise it around here, but the and de-aging of Stuart and McKellen in that is actually very well done. Yeah. Uh, quite subtle, but, you know, just takes takes a couple of decades off them. i tell you what's terrible at that is the fake version of Patrick Stewart that you see at the very end of X-Men Origins Wolverine. Yes, that is not good. Which mm-hmm. makes you want to poke your eyes out with something that isn't even sharp. Agreed. Yeah, films that span decades, because old age makeup is really has a tendency to be really hokey yeah. and really, really awful. I kind of like the movies that don't really make that much of a concession to it mm. um, Shawshank Redemption for example covers about 30 years in Andy Dufresne's life and they basically get rounded by putting a little bit of crow's feet on Tim yeah. Robbins' face and making his hair grey towards yeah. the end otherwise he looks pretty much the same and I guess that's you know how much do people really age I mean yeah. we all feel we all stay looking relatively the same and then you'll just see a picture of yourself when you're 18 and you go what the fuck is that uh, who is that kill it with fire uh, but I, I don't think how much of us really change in body shape facial shape facial hair not, not a lot well we saw The Rock uh, this week there were pictures Good on point. Twitter of The Rock in the 90s looking about a million percent less cool than he does now. <laughs> he hashtagged this tweet with this picture, hashtag buff lesbian. He also, and I promise you this is true, is wearing a fanny pack. He is. <laughs> and he's leaning into the fanny pack. He's just leaning in as if to go, uh, ladies, this is a fanny pack. Oh my God. What a guy. Phil um, Simeon has a fanny pack. He also has an <laughs> Alexander pack as well. Just to- Bergman joke for you there. Amazing. The concession for the Arnaz crowd. <laughs> we didn't mention uh, Dewey Cox in Walk I Hard. I beg your pardon? Uh, who, of course, ages from um, 14 to somewhere in his 70s on screen. Um, mm. He's he's equally unconvincing, I think, at either end. But it's it's amusing to see John C. Riley play a 14-year-old. So I'm gonna I'm just going to shout him out right there. Dave Bowman in 2001 Space Odyssey, who, you know ages hundreds of years seemingly and, uh, and or backwards and or backwards indeed speaking and, uh, of which Benjamin Button Benjamin Button and uh, I always have a soft spot for Julian Glover as Donovan Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade at the very very end when he chooses poorly and uh, he ages very very quickly oh that's fun which is a really hokey effect now when you look back at it but it's 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 great fun what about Back to the Future 3 when they come in on the train I think they look that much older no, it's more the aged Marty McFly in the future. Oh, that's what I'm mm. thinking With of. The and the that's rain. what I'm thinking of. Yeah, that's um, 
That still startles me, actually, those scenes. I mean, that startles me, and the bit where the kid... Is it he scratches his groin or something? You know, on the train when it comes in at the very end and it's flying in. Oh, the little kid, the little kid who points to his penis. That's it, he pointed his penis. Yeah, he points to his penis. There's another great bit in Teen Wolf. Right at the very, very back of one of the crowd scenes, it's alleged and it's still not clear when people blow it up. And no matter how much I yell computer enhance at the screen, it just doesn't seem to want to do it. But you... uh, there's a there's a shot where an extra appears to have got his Johnson out. That's it. Appears. Huh. By the way, it's not computer enhance. It's uh, analyze. Analyze. Xbox One. Analyze. Xbox enhance. Xbox make two and a half men funny. Can't do it. Can't do it. Can't wow. do it. Actually, on this topic, and part of the reason why this is on my mind is because one of our favourite podcasts, which we mentioned before, is How Did This Get Made? And recently they plugged us after we did this kind of swapping thing. They did a show on the amazing, and by amazing I mean truly amazing, Easy Rider 2, which we talked about with Peter Fonda. And we said, hey, by the way, guys, we have this great quote from Peter Fonda where he just goes, that piece of shit, he came to me looking for advice and to promote the movie, and I told him to go, you know, screw himself. We said, hey, check out this clip. They have done their own separate podcast, mini-sode, about this off the back of it. So this is just sharing some love. Basically, they recently did a show on Mr. Nanny, which I've already referenced. (laughs) And there is a bit in the first seven minutes, which they bring up and and they noticed for their live show when they were talking about it, where as Terry Hulk Hogan is driving his motorbike down a road near a river... In yes. one, I promise you, for three, se- it's three, three, maybe four frames, you can see a man in the background take his dog uh-huh. and just throw it in the river. Yeah. And this isn't a, hey, go have a swim. Hey, puppy, you'll have some fun. He's just chucking a dog away in the background. Check it out. It's on YouTube. Yeah, Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, we tweeted it from the Empire account. It's also on Facebook. Did you know also in Star Wars, the original Star Wars, there's a bit where Stormtrooper bangs his head. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I don't. I, mean, I think that's Is anyone aware of that? Lies. Okay. okay, so that's uh, that's it for your questions this week. Just two, because we had so much fun with those two. We had to move on. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter. At Empire Magazine is the address. And please use the hashtag Empire Podcast or we won't see it. Okay, time for our first interview. And in a change to our advertised schedule, we're not bringing you Brett Ratner. He'll be around next week on next week's show. So instead, Marvel Big Cheese Kevin Feige dropped by unexpectedly the other day, along with 17 minutes of footage from his studio's new movie, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> and afterwards, Helen and I went along to the cosy confines of Screen 9 at the Empire Leicester Square really cosy confines like just slightly bigger than the bottom booth uh, to talk to him about that movie about Doctor Strange and about just what the hell happened with Edgar Wright and Ant-Man enjoy we're delighted to be joined on the Portable Empire podcast by uh, Kevin Feige welcome back sir how are you? thank you so much very happy to be here very happy to be in a cinema Uh, yes if it gets awkward I have a signal which will turn the lights down and start (laughs) a movie Just a movie. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have Age of Ultron with you just in case just in case people ask, let's just see what's happening? Let, let the movie speak for itself. Yeah. <laughs> Roll it. Um, my first question to you would be, I am Groot. I'm Groot. Are you fluent in Groot now? Can you speak? Do you do you understand all the intonations of Vin Diesel? There, there is uh, there is a way to understand him. Yes, Rocket. I think after the after after the course of the movie, I think the audience I think will find themselves much more fluent than they than they ever thought they would be in Groot. Peter Quill at a certain point in the movie goes. Actually, I think I, I might have cut it out of the movie. There was a moment where he said, <laughs> I, "I can't believe it. I'm speaking Groot." And and uh, a lot of that is thanks to James. A lot of that is thanks to the way the character has been reinterpreted in the comics mm-hmm. in recent years. A lot of it is James and the way that he wrote the draft and, and, and brought Groot to life. And a lot of it is Mr. Diesel himself, who mm-hmm. did 
an amazing job and took it very, very seriously um, when he came into record Groot and yeah. got, you know, from James very specific direction and requested uh, very specific direction for each and every line because, as you know, he means something different every time he says it. Yeah. And James said he was, he was the one who was pushing for, no, one more take, I can do it better, oh, I can yeah. do it better. Yeah, he, and, and, and he was right and it's really, really, uh, it's really good and the emotional sort of arc that this character who is a tree and only says three words is quite astounding uh, over the course of the movie. Um, and, and Vin and Vin delivered. And, and it was, you know, it, it sort of is just one of those amazing, one of those rare times where, in a way, I think the Internet actually, which is not always a force for good, uh, uh, was, uh, was helpful because Vin has, you know, 15 trillion Facebook followers and, uh, and keeps his fans sort of abreast of, of what's going on, including his upcoming meeting with Marvel, which mm. started an entire thing online or about what is it going to be or what could it be or what is the role? And he would tease them along by saying, oh, you know, big things in store. Well, there weren't big things in store. There were just, there were just long leading discussions <laughs> going on. But this fervor sort of came up and he sort of was like, so what are we going to do? We got to get something going. And, you know, we sort of know the movies in the, in the not-too-distant future, and, and there wasn't anything that, that was presenting itself a couple of years ago for, for anything to be immediate. And then I thought, well, we had actually referenced a number of times I am Gi- uh, Iron Giant. Yeah. I am Giant. Iron Giant <laughs> I am Groot. in terms of uh, Groot, a little bit. I mean, we talked about it a little bit. Iron Giant speaks more than, speaks more than Groot does. But obviously Vin did that voice, and it's... And it's awesome. Yeah. And in the same way, actually, the Iron Giant starts out as this mechanical beast. And by the end, the last thing he says is so emotional and is so and is so. And that is exactly what James had written for the arc of for the arc yeah. of Groot. And uh, and I thought I said, James, I think I think we could get Vin to, to do this. Mm-hmm. I think he would be into it and remember Iron Giant. He's like, that'd be great. Yeah. Is he going to do it? And Vin was like, I'm totally he loved it. He loved it, and his kids started printing out things about Groot and are obsessed with Groot now, and it's really, it really worked out well. I remember the, uh, the hullabaloo when Finn posted that stuff. Yes. Like he, he posted a picture of himself in Marvel Studios yes. in your HQ, yes. and people were going, is he the Vision? Right. Is right. he Thanos? Right. But you said, uh, we did a Q&A with you early on, uh, there was a screening of uh, some Guardians footage followed by a Q&A, and you said that, you know, and you've, you've hinted at it again, that it doesn't preclude... Finn from playing another character in the MCU? No, of course. Point. I mean, the, the truth is, Guardians is our 10th movie. Hopefully we'll make 10 more movies and 10 more movies after that. So to a certain extent, if you're only going to, if you're going to close the door to additional parts for other people, your pool is going to start to narrow rather dramatically. And certainly for somebody like Vin, who is who is doing a very specific thing for us as Groot, there, you know, there's easily the, an opportunity down the line. I don't know what it is yet, and we'll see what it is, and who knows. <laughs> So, so how do you kind of keep track of everything? Is it a matter of just kind of throwing around ideas until something great comes up? Pretty, pretty much. I mean, it is, it is the, way we're, the way we're structured. It's a relatively tight organization, and all of us, when we're together, talk about everything. And then the various, and, and you, you know Jeremy Latcham and, and Stephen Broussard and, and Nate Moore, now Brad Winterbaum uh, and Jonathan Schwartz, all go off and handle their own, their own movie. So they're people who are responsible for each individual movie, but all of us are in conversation. And then there, there are handfuls of us, like myself and, and, and Lucy Esposito and, and Alan Fine that oversee all, all the movies. And it's also a give and take. So there's a general roadmap, which is not in strings and post-it notes on the, on the wall, but is in various documents and, uh, and uh, uh, brains. Um, there's always an ebb and flow. You know, so there's always a plan. There's always a general idea of where we want to get to. But if something comes up 
that's very interesting and cool in one movie that can impact another movie. And sometimes if you're looking for, I can't really you know, think of a specific example, but if there's, a, if there's a, the need for one type of character in a film mm. um, for whatever story reason or plot reason, um, and a character has existed. That's how Selvig came about, frankly, going from, from uh, Thor into, into Avengers. And then, of course, Selvig is, is an unbelievable, awesome part of our tapestry now. But there was a need for a scientist-type character to be dealing with the Tesseract in Avengers as, as Joss was plotting it together. We were finishing Thor at the time, and I called Joss and I said, let's see if we could get Stellan to, to play this part and be the same character across it. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, so in terms of... Uh, I did think of an example. <laughs> there you go. You spread any information between everyone just in case one of you is taken out by a Hydra attack, or is that just to make sure there's no yes. one big brain? Yes. I mean, there are varying various people in the loop. I'll tell you a funny story about Hydra, by the way, and how you can't ever really predict what will, what will pick up. Mark Singfeely, excellent, excellent screenwriters of Captain America, the first Avenger, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, working on Cap 3 now, and the Agent Carter ABC series mm. for us. So uh, excited about that. They're, they're, it's going to be so cool. Haley so, is so excited for it and so awesome. Had a fun idea to put a Gary Shandling cameo into the Winter Soldier to show how deep sort of Hydra was, was going. So he leans over to Sitwell and whispers in his ear, Hail Hydra. And the weekend the movie came out, this meme starts oh, yeah. with Bert and Ernie, with all these fun things. I then went and spoke... Um, it was very, very nice. I went and spoke at, at uh, the film school that I went to at USC in L.A. and spoke to the graduating class and then stood up there very awkwardly in my cap and gown uh, <laughs> as, you know, 450 students came by and got their diploma and, and shook their hands with, with Jim Giannopoulos, who was the primary speaker that day, and Dean Daly. And I would say out of that 450, a good 25 or 30 students when they shook my hand leaned in and went hail hydra <laughs> and i was not expecting that it was very cool it was very funny and i told chris and steve uh, uh the writers about that and, and uh, complimented them on, on creating a uh, a mini a mini sensation amongst Definitely. some people i think we do it at least once a week in our <laughs> at least at one point it was like once hourly so i would, I would manufacture excuses to hug people just so i could lean in <laughs> It got very uncomfortable after a while, but uh, really did. But there you go. But um, but it, it's been an interesting time for for Marvel uh, recently, by by way of a clumsy segue. We had the the whole uh, hullabaloo with Edgar Wright and yes. Ant Man. Yeah. Um, as much as you can, from your perspective, what what happened there? Because it seemed that suddenly there was a, a, a people felt that Marvel maybe not as invincible as as you once were. I don't know that we ever thought of ourselves as invincible. That quite quite the opposite. You know, once you start thinking you're invincible, I think you start making bad choices or bad bad decisions. We think we're very, very invincible, uh, <laughs> and uh, and and worry all the time. Um, no, I mean it's much more personal than that. You know, it, we've been with Edgar for eight years. Saw the premiere of a number of his films in this very theater. You know, the biggest disappointment to me is not that uh, that he'll not be making the movie. You know, it was determined by by him and by us that that would not be the best thing for the movie. The disappointing thing for me is not being able to to to, to make a movie with him uh, mm. uh, right now. Is is just the just the personal relationship. And and it was amicable. And we sat in a room together and went, okay, this isn't. This isn't working. I wish I or he had figured that out somewhere in the eight years leading up to it. But uh, we said, okay, let's put out a statement and let people know it's not, it's not, um, you know, screaming and fighting and, and dramatic. Let's just put out a statement. Well, what should we say? Make a big wordy statement. It just came down to creative differences. And I said, well, no one's ever going to believe that because that's what everybody always says. 
And Edgar went, well, but that's, that is what it is. I said, that's true. Um, and, he, and he was a little nervous about, well, gosh, what will the perception be of me leaving the movie? And I said, Edgar, don't worry about it, because the perception will be that the evil studio <laughs> squashes the innocent filmmaker. Mm. I said, that'll be the perception no matter what. Mm. And that is the perception. Um, but it's much more complicated than that. And it's, and it's, uh, and it's um, uh, uh, again, to me, it's always, whether it's, whether it's reading in the early days of, of online fandom with, with uh, Ain't It Cool News back in 1999 that, uh, that Brian Singer's a terrible choice for X-Men and Hugh Jackman's way too tall to be Wolverine. We're very thick-skinned and we're very used to the second-guessing and the, and, the, uh, and, the, uh, and, the sort of, and the sort of color commentary during, during the process. And we'll do what we've always done, which is block it out and make the best movie possible because mm-hmm. it always comes down to us about the end product, about when the lights go down on opening night and the clean slate appears, and what is the experience of the movie. And clearly we believe that we're on the road now with Peyton Reed to the best version of Ant-Man that could have existed. Have you given yourselves enough time with Ant-Man? We're now in July 2014. No, yeah, we are. I mean, it's, yeah. we, we're, our schedule is not that dissimilar right now from, from Iron Man 3 or the original Avengers. And Ant-Man is not as, uh, as visually complicated as, uh, as either of those two films. So what was it that made you go for Peyton Reed? Because I know he was attached way back in the day to he was a sort of 60s set Fantastic Four. It was not actually 60s set. I think that it was, uh, uh, he had done a film called Down With Love, which was really, really good, which was 60s set. And I think maybe that's where some of the confusion okay. came in. But it was, but it was, uh, I believe, was going to be very, very cool. And we had, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it might have been a year or more of working together on, on that version. And we were at Marvel Studios then, and I was just one of many of many people involved in that, in that first version. And over the years, had stayed in touch with him and, and frankly, had come very close on a, on a handful of movies to, uh, to working with him again. And um, when Edgar left this project, you know, we, we sort of talked about a number of filmmakers and had a few meetings with some filmmakers and ended up reaching out to Peyton, knowing that it wouldn't be a slam dunk. Peyton is not just a, oh, a movie, I'll take it. Uh, I mean, he sort of had to be convinced that... Uh, that uh, the big bad studio hadn't squashed the innocent filmmaker. That it was that it, that we were doing what was right for the for the movie. And and he read all the previous drafts and saw everything that had that had been created and and is elevating it and is really having a very clear vision of his own to to bring this to life. And the cast is incredibly engaged. And we're starting on uh, on uh, June 18th. We uh, sorry August 18th. We start okay. filming. And just just a, a couple of last points and about about Edgar as well. It, it, it just seems so late in the day in terms of the decision that you, you both made. Can you talk, uh, I guess, about why you made the decision so late in the day? Uh, and what exactly was, was happening in terms of those creative differences? Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not worth right now going into, into super specifics necessarily. Um, uh, I wish it wasn't as late in the day as it was, um, but it, it just had become clear that there was, a, that there was an impasse that we had never reached before. Um, and we've worked with, with uh, lots of unbelievably talented filmmakers um, like Edgar with, uh, with our other films. Um, and there, and there, of course, there are disagreements along the way. There have always been disagreements, whether big or small. That's the collaborative nature of, of, of filmmaking, and in particular, the collaborative nature at, at Marvel that has, that has uh, uh, producers, not just me, that, that are very, very involved and very, very opinionated. Mm. And we'd always found a way around it. We've always found a way to, to battle through it and, and, uh, and emerge on the other side with a better product, whether it's with Joss or whether it's with Shane or whether it's with, uh, with James or with John or with any of our – or with uh, uh, Joan Anthony. At no point do we hire filmmakers who do everything we say, and at no point do we hire filmmakers that we let just do anything they want. And there's always a middle ground that we find, and it just be- became sort of clear that, 
at the middle ground that both of us were being too polite <laughs> uh, over the past eight years, I guess. Um, and that it was clear that it, that it oh, you're really not going to stop talking about that note? No. Oh, you're really not going to do that note? No. Mm. All right. This, okay. isn't, this isn't working. In, in football terms, soccer terms over here, we have the, the phrase by mutual consent when a club and a manager part ways. So is that, that seems fair to say? That seems to be... Uh, I'm not very good at sports analogy, <laughs> I tell you. <laughs> but I guess it sounds pretty good. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. Um, That's where you kick it, you can't touch the ball, you kick yeah. it across the field. That's the one. I see. There, there was a big tournament about it. I don't know whether you, the you, Olympics. Just, you just missed it. Yeah, that's yeah. Uh, <laughs> Back to Guardians. I was, I was on set. I'm very, very excited about this one. But it, it's one where people have been talking about this being a risk the whole time, which it right. kind of seems like if it is a risk, which I'm not convinced of, it's one that's worth taking because it opens up this whole cosmic, you know, storyline. It opens sure. up that whole kind of cosmic world. I think that's true. I mean, it, it is... When we do a movie that people don't consider a risk, I guess people would say Avengers 2 isn't a risk, but I think the way we're doing it and the way we're making it, people would consider a risk. But it, that has become very valuable to us, that it is that people call the Iron Man a risk. People call the entire, the, the entire um, notion of becoming our own studio a risk. It's only, it only becomes a risk if it fails. Um, and, and there's always the chance of that. There's a chance of anything, whether no matter how high profile or how unknown, to fail. So one of the fun things about becoming the own, our own studio, for me, was having, was having creative oversight and was having Marvel be the ones that, that, that could, could drive the, the creative. And I, we always knew that someday... That and we thought it might, might be with Iron Man One. Maybe casting Robert Downey was the worst decision one could one could make. And if it had turned out to be a bad decision, at least it would have come from a place of enthusiasm and excitement and 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 our heart being in the right place. Mm. We thought that would have been fun. We thought that would have been a good idea. If it didn't fa- and it had failed, at least it was an attempt to do something interesting, as opposed to who's in the number one movie. This weekend, get that person. You know, sort of the Monday. Let's get. Well, they're not right for the role. It doesn't matter. The audience likes them. Put them in the theater. Those were the kind of decisions that we. Not that that happened a whole lot on on the other movies we've been involved with before we became our studio, but it happened sometimes, and usually didn't work, which allowed us to to sort of make decisions that we thought could would work, whether other people consider them risky or not. And with Guardians and with hiring James Gunn, um, it was exactly as you say about exploring another vast side of the of the Marvel universe from the comics in a way that Thor touched upon and Avengers touched upon, but really just sort of blow it out completely. Yeah. And the fact that we always wanted to do a space movie and always wanted to do a big sort of space opera um, uh, uh, epic movie and, and, and what uh, um, the publishing folks had done over the years with Guardians just made it, made it uh, 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 you know, the candidate to, to do that. And what James Gunn was able to bring to it is... You know, I hope what, what all your listeners will go experience when it comes out, which is an unbelievably unique uh, vision. But what you have as well with this movie is with, uh, with Avengers, you have five movies building up to Avengers. So by the time it starts, we hit the ground running, we know who these characters are. Um, if with, you've seen all the movies. If you've seen all the movies, yeah. absolutely. But with, with Guardians, you have five guys, five people in the, in the in main team. Plus you have Ronan. Plus you have uh, you know, all these other characters as well. It's an incredibly difficult job for for James as a as a writer, along with Nicole Perlman, to to hit the ground running and fill in the the stories. How how, how big a challenge was that for for them? How well, for I mean, I think it it that was part of the fun of doing the movie was to do a team based movie from the start, from the first from the first film, and and tap into the to the, to the Wild Bunch, into the Magnificent Seven, all those great and the Dirty Dozen, these these awesome uh, great escape. 
uh, ensemble movies where you do meet all the characters in the in, in the in the body of the in the body of the film for the first time. James, I think, was very much embraced that and uh, and was able to listen. The, really, what you're saying, really, what you're saying is, and what has what has been we've been tried to be very sensitive about is there are a lot of weird looking people and a weird lot a lot of weird <laughs> names and a lot of weird planets. How the heck are people going to digest all of that? Um, and if the movie were only about memorizing all the names and the places and the, and the story and the uh, backstories, it would be very tough. But the movie is about the experience. Mm-hmm. And what James has done so brilliantly is anchor the movie in in very grounded ways. The hero is from Earth, as he was in the comics, mm-hmm. is from Earth. He was abducted in 1988. All of his references that he used throughout the movie are based on on pop culture from the 80s, which whether you grew up in the 80s or not, a lot of people are familiar with, and suddenly a guy in the most alien of environments bringing the movie for audiences, they erupt when, they, when, you, when you mention something that is so out of place to mention in a movie like this. And more importantly, in the, in the brilliance of, of James, is although that was always sort of inherent in the movie before he joined us, was, was wanting to anchor the movie with this human character, with these references, James had the idea that in this knapsack that he has on him as he's taken from Earth, in the in the 80s is a is a is a walkman and is a mixtape that his mother gave him of all these songs that she loved from the mm-hmm. 70s and it becomes not only a way to to make the audience whether they're fans of science fiction or not completely comfortable and anchored in this in this the absurdity of the of the movie it it it, it gives you an action sequence that you're not going to see anywhere else or have never seen with hooked on a feeling for instance as the as the backdrop to being processed uh, and going through an alien prison for the first time. Mm. Um, and that happens a number of times over the course of the movie. Now, obviously, Marvel's caused huge waves in the film industry over the last couple of years. You've been a, an enormous success story. DC seem to be finally gearing themselves up to to go toe-to-toe, um, potentially, with, with Cap 3 and Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice. Dawn of Justice. Yes, sorry, to give it its full title. <laughs> how are you? How do you feel about this? How are you? How are you seeing it? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite fair to say DC's finally getting their act together. The Dark, the Dark Knight movies were sure. were rather successful, <laughs> and uh, and and uh, and uh, sort of genre defining and uh, and uh, and altered uh, altered the genre um, in 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 big in big ways. So so I, I think you know there's always been a uh, there's always been competition that way right i mean iron man was the number one movie 2008 until dark knight came along and and i loved it frankly i love the number one and number two movie of that year and it has now happened a number of times since then being comic book movies even if it was one we didn't make because because here we are now 14 years since since the first marvel movie i i worked on at that point it had been eight years and for about those eight years people were asking how much longer is this going to going to last? When are people going to get tired of these kind of movies? And my answer always was, they'll only get tired if a whole slew of terrible ones come out. Yeah. And it's our job to make sure that doesn't happen. And if there are other people out there interested in that not happening as well, I'm all for it. Um, so so I, I continue to be all for um, quality entertainment for, uh, <laughs> for moviegoers to enjoy on, on weekends. Excellent. If it's on the same weekend, I enjoyed slightly less, but uh, <laughs> but we're doing what we've always done, which is um, which is sticking to our plan and sticking to uh, to to our vision for the for the movies going forward, and and we have a, a very large vision that that uh, that we're working on for 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 Cap Three and for the and for the all the Phase Three um, movies, and just because another movie plops down on top of us doesn't mean we're going to alter that. 
uh, anyway. Maybe we should, but we're not going to. You keep saying vision. I, yes, the vision, the, the <laughs> long-term planning versus the versus character. The, character. Yes. Okay. Uh, the, the very last thing, uh, Kevin, very, very quickly, is uh, about that vision. Not Lee vision, but the other vision. A vision, um, a vision that you have. Because uh, obviously Ant-Man's about to start. Avengers is just about to wrap up. Uh, you're also in, in pre-production on, on Cap 3. Uh, I guess a scripting stage at the moment with Cap 3? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, and Doctor Strange now has a director. Yes. Uh, a horror director. By by trade, three of the three of the films that Scott Derrickson's made recently have been have been horror films, yes. scary ones as well. So does that indicate the direction that Doctor Strange might be going in? Well, I would say you certainly can look at, at the past work of our of our of the filmmakers we hire as a as as a bit of an indicator for for the tone of the movie, but not necessarily everything. Um, and the Russos, who are most most well known for their for their sitcoms, there's nothing sitcom about about Winter Soldier. So uh, no, I wouldn't say just because he's done horror movies means that Doc Strange is going to be a horror movie. It means, you know, he's a talented filmmaker who we think could 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 add something very unique and very and very fresh to that particular franchise. But at the same time, there might be scary moments. There could be scary moments. There's scary <laughs> moments in all of our movies. There's some scary people that Strange has to deal with, though. I think that's that's fair to say. Okay, fantastic. Kevin, a pleasure, as always. As always, thank, thank you. you. So Thanks Thank very much. Cheers. Thanks. Yeah, interesting stuff there. I think we've probably got as much out of Kevin Feige as he's prepared to say at this point about the whole um, Edgar Wright Ant-Man situation. Yeah. Um, and I feel Edgar Wright won't be talking about this on the record for about another two years, if indeed ever. Um, but that was interesting. I think he's very aware, as he said in the interview there, that uh, he knew that Marvel would be cast as the big evil studio crushing the uh, yeah. the talented filmmaker uh, which is very very interesting uh, yeah, I don't know I'm, I still have I still have obviously mixed feelings in that whole situation very much so but I think it, I mean at least he's kind of owning to that he's not sort of you know ducking responsibility he's not casting aspersions on anyone mm. um, even even by omission he's he's absolutely full of praise for, for Edgar and, uh, and and indeed for Peyton Reed and I just hope that I hope that we get a decent film out of it. I hope Edgar does something amazing next. I'm I'm pretty sure that he will. Obviously, Avengers Two is a bit a bit of a slam dunk. Uh, see how it happens. Uh, EW this week had a, a big cover uh, along with the first look at the big bad guy Ultron, who is played by James Spader but does not look like James Spader. No, he looks uh, like Ultron. He looks like Ultron. Look, it's like a different version of Ultron. I mean, mm. I was on set uh, months ago. That there was concept art for him all around the room, and there were lots of different iterations. I wonder if there are going to be different looks for Ultron through the script. Through the, sorry. Wonder there's going to be different looks for Ultron throughout the movie because obviously he's Iron Man related, and he's so also evolving, isn't he? He's evolving, so I wonder if the look we see on the cover of EW is the final look. He's got but, kind um, of Thor-like head wings, <clears throat> which I thought was quite interesting. There was seemed to be a similarity there. Maybe oh, that's interesting. Maybe yeah. just the way I view maybe wings maybe. and everything. You see everything through a Thor-shaped prism yeah. sort of thing. Who yeah. doesn't? Frankly, well, indeed, especially um, this week. There's big, big news about Thor as well. Was, yeah. So do check out that, that piece by my good chum Anthony Breshnikin. Uh But obviously, there's Guardians of the Galaxy first, which everyone said was a huge risk. Having seen 17 minutes of footage now, that's put the disclaimer. Klaxon sure. going. You know, remember we've seen, Godzilla. Remember Godzilla. <laughs> remember the other films which we've seen minute. You know, 17 minutes off before, and then come, seen the finished thing and go, oh, the other hundred was rubbish. Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited about Guardians. Not. Uh, I was on set of Guardians, and um, I know it's terrible being in a room with us both, isn't it, Ali? Um, but it, some of what we saw in the footage was part of what I saw them shooting on set when I was there, and it was interesting to see the lines that they've gone with. Gone with. They were they were kicking about a couple of different versions of the scene. There were some lines that were cut out 
for pacing or whatever, some that were slightly altered from what I saw them them shooting. Um, all the versions of those lines were funny. The, the ones in the final script are probably the funniest, but it's it's interesting how much funny material they had okay. so that they were able to kind of refine it and get the, the, the best version. Uh, and also, if you've seen the, the TV spots that went up online this week, they're also increasing the funniness. What we did see is, I think, that um, Dave Bautista's Drax is going to be hilarious. He looks... He looks really, really good in this, and I'm, I'm very excited because he is, despite his terrifying appearances, one of the nicest, sweetest, and most humble stars I've ever come across in Hollywood. So I'm, I'm kind of optimistic for that. And yeah, it does. I mean, you know, Rocket and Groot look amazing. Um, I think this could be really fun. I, I think, I think uh, we talked to, with Feige about this, but uh, you know, to, just to reiterate, I genuinely think the risk for Marvel would be not taking risks. And I think stuff like Guardians is exactly what they should be trying to do. So, hooray. I agree. Fingers crossed for that Fingers one. Crossed, I, yeah. I had a real blast during, it, during the end. There was a montage towards the end of the footage. Because uh, the footage itself, as you say, was about the, the prison break sequence, which is which is fun and inventive and has lots of little quirky James Gunn moments, which uh, which is good. Because, you know, I, I think this whole Ant-Man thing has, uh, has led to a rash of people saying that Marvel beat the personality out of their directors. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure that's true and I, I, hopefully there'll be a lot of uh, James Gunn hopefully not the James Gunn who made Super but hopefully <laughs> hopefully the James Gunn who made the specials and Slither like uh, that survives through to this oh god and I think I mean if you look at the Avengers that those are that's none more Whedon really. none more Whedon so. and uh, there's a there's huge swathes of Shane Black exactly. uh, in Iron Man 3 so I, I think I think you know in the right circumstances that uh, they, they can mesh together well and I think uh, I think this is a Really interesting. I just want. Uh, there's so many characters. We talked about it a little bit with Feige. This is a an origin tale. Hit the ground running. Who are these five people? Plus everyone else. And you know, there's a lot of different spinning plates. And I just yeah. I hope that they can. Pull but it all I together. think. I mean, that's what films do. Generally speaking, outside of the Marvel universe, most films have to introduce their entire cast first time around. Yeah. So that's all this one has to do. Nobody. Yeah. No, it was good to see uh, Feige uh, name checking things like the Dirty Dozen and Magnificent yeah. Seven as uh, reference points for Guardians of the Galaxy, uh, for which we will have a spoiler special. Uh, next week's Comic Con, a few of us are going to be off at Comic Con, but uh, we'll be back after that and our Guardians of the Galaxy spoiler special. Uh, I think Ali is going to be uh, interviewing James Gunn and Chris Pratt for that one. Uh, it's going to be up on August 4th, Monday, August 4th. So that's. Three days after it opens in the States and four days after it opens in the UK. Uh, so if you want any Guardians of the Galaxy answers, do check in for that one. Um, but in terms of other other news, there was lots of big news this week. There was, a, In terms of Marvel Comics, there was a news that Thor will now be a lady. Uh, and the new Captain America has been announced as Sam Wilson, a.k.a. the Falcon. So we now have a black Captain America as well. So it's very, very interesting. Wait, wait, wait. But wait. We talk about comic movies in the Empire Podcast no. news section? That comics. No, I'm just saying. Are we, are we talking about comics? This isn't like us. Briefly, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll I'll, I'll start talking about Liverpool again. Uh, but I just wanted to mention that very very briefly. That's happened. That's done. We'll talk about that and maybe another time. What's happened in the world of movies though? Again, I can answer that question with something that has with another to do question. With films. Okay. Uh, I've already mentioned True Detective because I've just finished watching it and it's obviously in my mind. But there is something in the news that's interesting for film fans and obviously TV fans because let's be honest. We were actually talking about this earlier. So yeah. much of the middle ground of movies, the $30 million film, is is now on the smaller screen with Breaking Bad and HBO's fine work and all that kind of good stuff. Anyway, Colin Farrell. Like mm. him. Gorgeous, man. 
Gorgeous. You're gorgeous. He is absolutely gorgeous. And gorgeous. He, gorgeous. He, don't, because I will never stop if we carry on. He is, he has been rumoured, linked with, he's in talks for appearing in the second season of True Detective, which is the crime anthology series that HBO put out. And it's caused a lot of fans of the show, which had Woody Harrelson and, all right, all right, all right, Matthew McConaughey pairing up as this incredible pair of very different detectives uh, in Louisiana and them dealing with this cult of a sort and a serial killings of a sort. And Colin Farrell is now linked to the second series, which is, uh, according to the rumours and what little information we have currently, going to take place in Los Angeles. Obviously, the first one is very noir The whole concept is this noir anthology. So Los Angeles, it's almost like the doy, yeah. to quote um, Britta <laughs> from Community. But there's also been rumours that there'll be three detectives in this one and maybe two of them or one of them or there might be some more women because I think the first season definitely suffers from from ah, a real distinct lack of strong female roles. Uh, though Michelle Monaghan, who's absolutely wonderful and doesn't get enough good roles like this, is great in it, but she's quite subjugated. Anyway, he is linked to it, which has got a lot of people's feathers ruffled. Wrongly, uh, I think. I think it's a neat idea. I think part of what made True Detective the first season so great is because of the innate chemistry between these two actors of Harrelson and McConaughey, who've been friends since forever, who could forget Ed TV, and so much else. Surf, Surf dude. dude, yeah. That's what made it so great when they were such distinct characters that kind of butted heads and shouted at each other in the car. Without that innate chemistry who's he going to be partnered with how's this going to work who knows but anyway it allows me to compliment Nick Pizzolatto who's the creative director the writer and showrunner of the show I always want to say Enrico Palazzo when, yeah don't do that whenever I see his name I want to say it's Nick Pizzolatto uh, but I'm hope so hopeful for this second season so it's rumoured that Taylor Kitsch will be joining him as That's one another of the other rumor. two yeah. yeah which I think is good and again obviously he's got a bad reputation on film but I mean if you watch Friday Night Lights the TV show he is so good in that he's a really good so actor so good and I think what both of them are excellent at doing and I think this is one of the things that, that Colin Farrell the reason that I'm not even slightly worried about Colin Farrell even though I watched Winter's Tale last week is because he is one of the greatest actors in the business if what you need is tormented and or guilt-stricken. Are people up at arms, True Detective fans up at arms, about the possibility of Colin Farrell? Yes, they just don't like him. They don't feel he fits I with I do the... not get this. Colin Farrell is one of the finest actors around. I just... And this is something that's happened ever since he hit the, uh, hit the, the big time back in 2000, Haters 2001. Haters gonna hate, bro. Yeah. I, what is it? Is it the fact that he's welcome to the internet? Possibly handsome and very charming. I don't I quite get I wouldn't it. use the word handsome. I would. I'd say gorgeous. Gorgeous. He's gorgeous. Yeah, you're gorgeous. I, um, I I agree with you, but you know, if you have a show that inverted commas comes out of nowhere and does really really well, or a movie or whatever, you could say that Marlon Brando has come back from the dead and he's 25 and he is at his finest and he's going to be in True Detective and I think a lot of people would still go. Just a pretty boy, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. really? I, I, I did inadvertently compare Marlon Brando to Colin Farrell and vice versa, but you take my point, I think. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, a pretty boy as opposed to Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, who are so famously hideous. Awful looking. <laughs> I know, but Woody Harrelson's not exactly, you know, he's not... He's not exactly Abercrombie, Matthew McConaughey, but he's not, he's not exactly... Hey, 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 hey. 
No, you're right. He probably is, actually. I mean, he does a lot of yoga. He's probably got some definition under there. No, I'm sure he's got definition, but what I'm saying is... Oh, God. <laughs> he perhaps doesn't have the male model looks, the ridiculously, ridiculously good-looking blue steelness of a McConaughey or a Farrell, does True. he? Yeah, True. so I'm Fine. just saying that about Well, Woody listen, if they, get, if they get Farrell and Kitsch, then they can get somebody a little bit plain as the third one to kind of balance it out. I think they do need a female detective. A female detective? I think they do too, but, you know... A hey. female detective? Have you lost your mind, sir? A lady policewoman? It would never work. Anyway, so that's my new story for film. Unless, of course, it's Juliet Bravo. Bring it back. Uh, yes, anything else? I have some news. Uh, Universal uh, have been planning for a while to bring back The Mummy. Um, not in its sort of uh, Brendan Fraser incarnation exactly, but in um, a sort of reboot of the classic Who's monster. great in that film, isn't he? Oh, I films. love Brendan Fraser so in those films. He's absolutely fantastic. And the first one I will absolutely stand over. Anyway, um, but it appears that this is only part one, only step one of a plan. Now, again, another thing we were talking about today, you and I, Ali, is the sort of the meta franchise, the way that Marvel and DC and Star Wars are, not, are planning their universes to have characters going off on their own, periodically coming back together, you know, different interlocking strands of story across multiple different films. Well, it appears that Universal's planning something similar for their monster characters. So the idea is, it seems, to have a cohesive, connected structure for Dracula, the Wolfman, Van Helsing, the Mummy and more. We don't know if they're going to bring them together in some kind of monster mash. We do the monster mash. But they are going to have sort of links between them. The, the Scavengers. <laughs> Anybody? Yeah. The, the uh, Fangers. Okay. Because okay. they got fangs. The Hairfengers, because one of them is hairy. The oh. Just Justice. The Horror League of Le- America. The League Franken, of Extraordinary the Gentlemen. Frankenfengers. The, the, the... Anywho, uh, so who would you get to do this? Who would be the people to shepherd these classic horror creatures to the screen? Well, I don't know about you, Helen, but I would definitely go for one half of the most celebrated writing duos of the last 25 years. You would be right in choosing, of course... Joel Cohen. Star Trek and Transformers... Alex Kurtzman. Oh, Alex Kurtzman. Who, of course, is, is split up with um, writing and producing partner Roberto Orsi, at, at least as far as the, their film work goes. And um, he is pairing with someone else. Who else would you hire, Chris? Who, who, who says to you, classic horror monsters? Oh, oh, oh I've got it, I've got it. Yeah. Uh, the uh, writer of the upcoming Dumbo film and Transformers for him. No, I, I, honestly, I would go for someone who has worked with mythical creatures. Yeah. I would go for someone who has worked with... I don't know a hulking great brute yeah. with a with a deep rumbly voice yeah. and a, a man who is the size of a small country. Sure, Pete like Dragon. for example, Finn Diesel and The Rock. Someone who's worked with Finn Diesel and The Rock. Who? But who? Who? who Helen? Chris? Who? Is there such a man? There is one such. Um, it's Chris Morgan. No way. From the Fast and Furious franchise. Now, obviously, that is a huge franchise for Universal where these creatures are based so it makes sense that he's a guy who's obviously popular in the studio and they're bringing him in uh, he's going to have to I guess slow himself down a little bit for the monster movies um, especially with a mummy I, I'm having a little bit of trouble taking this news seriously and I'm, I apologise to Chris Morgan you know if you've listened to this podcast that I am a huge fan of Fast Five and your work but <laughs> all I can think of when I think of Chris Morgan is that Onion episode where they had the screenwriter of Fast Five explaining himself and it was played by a four-year-old kid. 
um, adorably played by a four-year-old kid. I'm sure the real Chris Morgan is just as adorable, but perhaps slightly more mature. He's now um, seven, by the way. Oh, okay. So Sorry. He's, he's yes. really, really picked so, up So, I mean, uh, the idea of having interlocking monster movies, I guess, is an I, I intriguing really, one. I really like it. I do like that idea. I also want to have more movies right now which are something versus something. Not the something, this Batman versus Superman bollocks, but who doesn't love going to a film that is like vampires versus or Warlocks. Abbott and Costello meet you know Frankenstein or whatever so maybe what we should be having mm-hmm. stick with me now Dominic Toretto and Luke Hobbs meet the mummy yeah but what you need is you need to feel a sense of danger and in movies like this you don't want to be scared for the monsters true. <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to be worried that at some point they're going to be crushed by a car or blown <laughs> away or dis- disintegrated by a one liner you need to have a real sense of peril honestly I would bring that back I think this is actually a really good idea let's, let's hold fire on the creative forces behind it and see what happens uh, you know obviously the Universal Monster movies it, it, it's not the first time that these, these characters have been screened together if you haven't seen The Monster Squad by the way do check it out uh, Fred Decker uh, movie from the, from the 80s which is great fun and does much the same thing uh, but uh, if you go back to it and you go Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein meet Dracula and in deck Yes. Ant and Dead. Yes, absolutely. Uh, all right, great great stuff. Uh, there's some other interesting news this week. Uh, Ron Howard's doing a, a new documentary about the Beatles, about their, their touring. Apparently they've discovered loads of great unseen footage. And I should just point out while we're here that uh, if you're a 24 fan, and frankly, who isn't, then our uh, 24 Live Another Day, at least I presume that's the way it's pronounced, it's not Live Another Day, uh, Live Another Day, Empire Podcast Special, which features producer-director John Kazar, a big interview with him, and then uh, Nick Desemlian and James Dyer, who are the big 24 Bauer heads here at uh, Bauer Media. Uh, they're, they're chatting about the, the last episode. Of and, and John Kazar is, is a fascinating interview. He's, he's a really good one, so do check that out. Do check it out. Do. Do uh, okay, so that's uh, that's movie news now, and now it's time for our second guest. Second guest together, strong. Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes opens this week. In fact, it is already opened if you live in the states or indeed the UK because it opened yesterday, uh, and it finally propels Andy Circus to the top of the bill at long, long last. Even though technically he himself does not appear on screen once he's slathered in CG makeup. Uh, he plays, of course, Caesar, the leader of the intelligent apes, who in this movie are set on a collision course with a group of humans, survivors of the simian flu that ravaged the Earth. Ali Plum and our resident donologist, Dan Jolin, went along to talk to Mr. Circus earlier this week with their words, not with sign language, and were most amused. We hope that you will be too. Enjoy. Welcome, Andy Circus. It's already gone off to a riotous start. We're talking about fashion for some reason. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Something Where else from. would you start? I know, when you're talking about Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, obviously fashion is the first thing. My first thing is, I always ask you this, but how is your back? Oh, well, that's very kind. Um, my back is fine, actually. In fact, much better this time around, because Caesar now he's evolving means that I don't have to be too bent over. I can be more upright and bipedal. Bipedal. Oh, I love bipedal. <laughs> well, 73 million it's made over the weekend, really? over over in America, that's, 73 million. God, that's a few cinema tickets, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, better than track. I mean, how are you feeling? Oh, I mean, it's brilliant. And, uh, you know, most of all, I'm thrilled for, for Matt Reeves because he has 
just sweated blood to make this movie. It's been such a huge labour of love for him, apart, apart from the fact that, you know, it, 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 he's so passionate about it. It's, he has worked so hard to bring this movie together in such a short space of time, and full credit to him. It's a, uh, it's a brilliant, I think. I mean, even though I'm in it, I can say it's a great piece of story storytelling, mm. great piece of filmmaking. It's an, an emotional film. It's spectacular. It's epic. It's mythic. Um, and all those other superlatives, uh, you know, which you can't really say about films that you're in, but I can in this case. I'll say one thing about this film is that we as an office saw it last week and the office just came back and said, you've got to see it, it's amazing. There's a line in the film, which is also in the trailer, which is apes strong together. Yeah. Are you worried that people in the street will be running up to you and shouting apes strong together? I'd love it if people started doing that. It'd be great. It'd be so much nicer than people coming up and asking me to do Gollum. It would be, I just think it's time for a change. The time is now. The time, yeah, come up, all come up and say, home, family, future. You know, anything like that. I don't mind saying at the moment. Well, let's just make one thing clear, actually. Yeah. You perform all the vocalisations, don't you? Oh, yeah. Of Caesar. And the same goes for Toby Kebbell, Toba, everyone. So everyone. it's not just the the English. No, no. It's all of the apish as yeah, well, Of course, right? all of the vocalisations. Everyone learned whether, whether they were playing a gorilla or a chimpanzee or a, a orangutan. You know, Karen Carnival, who plays Maurice, mm. she's studied hugely, you know, to play that role. Um, she, she goes, she is, there's an orang she's, she's very become very familiar with um, that she, she pays lots of visits to. And mm. yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of, everyone's worked really hard on this. I love that you use the word orang like a first name. Well, you orang, you know. They get around. Yeah. There are fight sequences in this film where the apes fight. Did you institutionalise how the apes fight? Like, as in, is there a guidebook to ape-foo? There is, and uh, it's quite a hard uh, edition to get hold of. But yeah. you, but if you search long and hard enough, you can you can find it. No, I mean, this, this, is, this is the thing. We're... we're you know, as a group of, of actors playing apes, coached by the brilliant Terry Notary, you know, we had to find a, a physical language for everything. For 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 and 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 my, I mean, my journey as Caesar was a particular one because as because he evolves and has evolved, you know, fairly speedily throughout throughout the film, you know, linguistically and as well as physically and so on. But but every single thing that we do is acted out. So so it, despite the fact there's there's uh, like a thousand apes in the movie, every single one of them has been. Uh, performance captured and so the physicality you know the way we ride horses the way we pick up weapons the way all of that kind of stuff has to be really thought through so that there's a logic to it so it feels real i mean the film's a, a, a real milestone i feel in the sense that people are actually having the sensation of forgetting that it's a visual effects film uh, well, I, I think that was the ent- entirely matt's objective that he wanted everyone to believe that this you were that you don't question it that you don't question that apes are talking that mm. you don't question that you know i mean just the environments and that was why we shot on location mm. and michael saracen's brilliant yeah. lighting which doesn't make you think oh this is uh, you know it's not it's not elevating it into some sort of fantasy film it's it's just lighting it for real and and all of those things add up to to what you're talking about hmm. i remember seeing you down on set you know in the heat of new orleans sweating it out and and, yeah. and thinking they're crazy taking 3d <laughs> cameras and motion capture out into this looks like it paid off it really did and, and again just to sort of to say why it was why I think it's so successful is that when you, when you've got a director who's who's got a huge crew on a, on a huge set like that big blockbuster movie pressure of delivering a spectacular event movie um, Matt was all about the drama all about spending time working out the scenes you know and and they're very intimate moments and 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 it's sort of it's so unusual to have to have that kind of feel in a big in a big spectacular blockbuster. I'm sure you get asked this a lot, but with it being such a success, obviously the sequel is guaranteed. What word are you going to pick for the next one's first word? 
Oh, I haven't thought about that. Probably Martini. Martini of the planet of the apes. No. Uh, what, what would you? What would the title be for you? It'll have to be something about like I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's not going to be sunset, will it? Well, it'll be sort of you know <laughs> before sunrise. So before sunset. it was probably second breakfast of the planet of the of the <laughs> of the apes. I'm going for war. A war, of, for war, war of the planet of the apes. Yeah, yeah. That's very good. Mm. That is actually war for the planet of the apes. Ah. Mm. War, war beneath for. the planet of the apes. War beneath. <laughs> I actually, now you've said it, really want... A martini. C- C- yes, martini. Yeah. <laughs> I want Caesar to get so evolved that martinis are on the menu. Well, that was, that's my... I mean, I pitched to Matt that it takes place in the Seychelles, on a beach, the humans come up and, and are serving the apes cocktails, and then James Franco turns up on a boat... With, <laughs> with grey hair. With grey hair. Uh, that's, that's my, that, that, you know, and, uh, and then Seth Rogen turns up as well and it all gets very yeah. hilarious. Right, and, Andy, right, I've got to say this to you. Lord of the Rings, Planet yeah. of the Apes, mm. and now Star Wars, are you just greedy? Are you just, like, <laughs> franchise greedy? What's going on? I don't know what's happened, you know. What's, well, I mean, you know, I was a theatre actor once upon a time. I was, playing, I was playing Iago in Othello, and now, you know, look what's happened. I don't know, I don't know. I, I, it certainly wasn't the plan. Um, but, of course, that's, you know... It, it, well, the, the tipping point, I suppose, was... It wasn't during Lord of the Rings, and I know that when we were creating the character of Gollum and performance capture was sort of being evolved at that time, as Lord of the Rings was coming to an end, as we were doing the last pickup shots for um, for Return of the King, it was then Peter Jackson asked me to play King Kong, and I thought, mm. hang on a minute, I've just played this three-and-a-half-foot ex-Hobbit, and now I'm going to play a 25-foot gorilla. This is great. It means that typecasting is dead. You can play anything. This technology is allowing me as an actor to play anything. So, so that's why... Um, and you know uh, the, the the roles kept coming in the performance capture realm, and 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 they've been great roles. They've been, it's all been about script and character. I've not sort of thought oh, I must only do performance capture. It just doesn't go like that. But it just so happens that the great roles and you know in great franchises have have uh, have happened. What you didn't mention there, Dan, was Avengers as well. Is that right? Avengers as well. Yeah, was, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And well, well, the great thing about that is that my involvement in that is sort of twofold, really, or the Imaginarium, our, our you know performance capture studios involvement because we've been working with with um, you know the cast on, on Avengers particularly Mark Ruffalo uh, working on the Hulk and then and then Joss Whedon asked me if I'd you know if I'd play a role in it so it was so that was so that was really very nice of him it's a good gig yeah it's a very nice gig and speaking of the Imaginarium I mean also your time management skills must, <laughs> must be astonishing because so on top of all this you're di- you've got two films lined up to direct as well so and the Jungle Book and Animal Farm I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Ah, oh, talking animals. Yeah, no, I'm I'm deeply excited about that. I mean, that that was again setting up the Imaginarium was a was a big a big thing to do, a big step, wanting to sort of bring performance capture led creatively uh, into this country and 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 sort of create a lab which was for furthering the art and craft of performance capture, but 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 also to to you know provide a sort of a space where writers and directors and actors and concept artists could get together and and create digital characters. It's sort of like a digital version of what Henson's used to be, really, I suppose. Wow. Um, that, was the, that was the idea. And, and, to, and to build up a troupe of actors, you know, to, who could use performance capture technology and also, um, you know, all the skills behind, behind the computers where people coming from all the art colleges and, and uh, animation colleges could come and, and build up that talent pool. So that was, that's the idea, to, 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 to bring it to 
the British film industry. And now I've got this amazing mental image of Kermit meeting Caesar. <laughs> now, both in some swamp somewhere, I can see it, in Louisiana. That's a very smart you, idea. You, you couldn't motion capture the Muppets, come on. <laughs> That's a step too far. Well... Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> For my next trick. Now, this is a little bit abstract here, but the original book that the first film was based on, which spawned this franchise, and the very naissance, using the French word, of all of this, was called La Planète des, des Singes. 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 Mm-hmm. Now, when that was first translated into English in the UK, the book was called Monkey Planet. Do you think you would have signed up for Rise of the Planet of the Apes if it was called Rise of the Monkey Planet? Absolutely. Um, I like that. I like... It's got a ring to it. Doesn't it? <laughs> Dawn. <laughs> actually, I was given... When I went to do the... the uh, over in Paris uh, to do some press, I was actually given an original copy of Le Planet de la Sage. Wow. Uh, which I have. I'm, I'm really proud of it. I, I mean, I can only read bits of it because well, I'm not totally fluent in French, but uh, no, it's fantastic. Have you read the translation? Uh, no, I haven't. Yeah. And I really, really should, actually. Yeah, it's more of, a, more of a satire, more, more comic. In a, in a yeah, 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 yeah. So I gather, yeah. actually. Yeah, I've heard. I was also wondering, if you go to the Wikipedia page of this film, and it's rare that Wikipedia makes you laugh, but this one's really good, which is, this film has already been described, this is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, with critics praising its special effects, story, direction and acting. I was just wondering if there's anything they missed out. It's just the most amazing Wikipedia entry. <laughs> In addition to the, the money it's been getting or whatever, it's just doing so well. Has, has this press tour been one of the more fun ones you've had? Because you're just really enthusiastic and f- enjoying it. Absolutely. It's not, I mean, without being, you know, n- no one likes a smart arse and nobody's being smug. <laughs> but, but, and I'm, I'm just, be, uh, well, there are two things actually that, that, that's great about this. One, one is that genuinely I'm so proud, as I said at the beginning, so proud of, of Matt's achievements because I think it's a groundbreaking film. But also the, le- the level of performance from, um, I, I can talk about all the other uh, actors mm-hmm. playing apes and particularly Toby Kebbell who's given the most incredible performance. And, you know, it, it really is the most most, it's, it's so layered, rich, unexpected, and dark, and and really moving. You know, and it's. A, I just think he's done the most amazing job. And we've we've seen in photos before before the some of the trailers came out. We saw stills of apes with guns. Yes. What was the approach to apes handling firearms? I was curious as to how. Was there a, a direction there specifically as to how guns would be held by apes and how that worked? No. Again, that that kind of went back to that. You know, when you've got all of these different apes, they're all evolved at, at, at different rates. So they'll yeah, they'll okay. pick up a gun in a completely different way. And a chimp, a, you know, at base level, a chimp will pick up a gun in a completely different way to an orangutan or uh, or a, um, a, a gorilla. But um, but actually, what about an evolved chimp or an evolved gorilla or an, you know? So so there are many many different permutations of how the weapons are handled. Equally so, the horses. Um, the, uh, riding the horses, we all trained. When, when we did our horse training beforehand, we had to do it as apes. So every time we mounted the horses and dismounted the horses, we had to do it as apes because that's what they they were going to have to get used to. And um, uh, you know, uh, in fact, I had a, a horse called Shirley who was very, very difficult and didn't like me raising my voice. So that scene where I, I, we go down to the colony and. Uh, uh, you know, and to show our strength started off with me. And, you know, and I, I, I shout, apes do not want war. Well, I could only ever get apes. And then Shirley would start doing this dressage move off to the, to the <laughs> left, like just shoot out of frame, terrified. And in the end, when the doors open, 
Gary Oldman and Jason Clark were faced with, uh, with 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 eight actors sitting on ladders because <laughs> because the horses were not, were not happy with with because uh, honestly they got freaked out by by apes sitting on on their backs. I must say, and this is an indication of just how believable this film is in terms of photorealism and stuff. Looking at the gorillas on the horses, I really worried for the horses. I went, that is what a heavy rider. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's been as ever an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Andy. For coming Thank to see you. Us. And um, until next time. Yes, indeed. Yeah, for the war. For the war. war <laughs> of the cocktails of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, and now it's time for our review section. We don't have a lot of time left in the booth. People are coming to kick us out very, very soon. So we're going to have to race through this week's big release. And thankfully, there's only one big release this week, which is Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. There's a few documentaries we'll talk about very, very briefly uh, yeah. as uh, later on. But Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, let's talk about it. I very much enjoyed this film. I loved it pretty much from the off as an opening sequence where you see the apes in the wild in San Francisco uh, outside of a human you know civilization just being themselves hunting and it is jaw-dropping the music from Michael Giacchino is incredible the wet fur as you see them leaping through the trees and hunting these animals and they have this uh, tribal face paint and very very few noises are made and it's just really good yeah it is fantastic I mean, the, the opening sequence um, which basically sees so this is the kind of the dawn of ape civilization they're living in the woods there's now 2,000 odd of them uh, with you know partnerships and breedings going on Caesar has married um, a character played by Judy Greer um, not that you'd know has a son called Bright Eyes who's already grown she's expecting again um, as we join them so he's you know he's become a leader he's become a family man he's not just a rebel anymore He's he's absolutely the head of this growing community and we see you know we see the development of ape language we see the development of ape writing and ape culture they're still mostly using sign language but they are capable of speech they use it when they need to and into this sort of rather idyllic society this civilization in Muir Woods comes a human party who are looking to reactivate a dam a hydroelectric dam in order to provide to provide the the settlement of humans that still exists in the city with power um, to keep them going and uh, and of course they have to negotiate with the apes for access to their sort of territory and so things initially are tetchy I think it's fair to say the leader of the humans played by Jason Clark comes to some kind of arrangement with Caesar but this creates stresses and tensions between in both communities that eventually come to boiling point I don't think that's much of a spoiler to say so I mean that, that's the that's the kind of the, the, the basic premise I mean what's interesting about these films is they're a lot darker in many ways than your average blockbuster. I mean, as we join this film, 99.9% of the world's population of humans has died. And there is this new rising intelligence on the planet, which is, you know, essentially becoming a, a real rival for territory. So it's a, it's an interesting setup, really. I think it's the thinkiest blockbuster you'll get this summer. Mm. I've been very impressed with the blockbuster so far this year. Uh, I've not been disappointed. Well, maybe once. But this one really makes you think. It is about peace. It is about war. It is about what you do for your family, what you do for your group of survivors. And relationships between Helen, I'm sure we'll make the sign of the cross here, fathers and sons, and how you deal with the sheer struggle of survival, which is not like, hey, grab me a beer and more popcorn, please, but they pull it off. You will do as much thinking as you will the dropping of jaws. Mm. Uh, because mm. there is plenty of action here and um, fight scenes and things, as you say, come to boiling point. And if anything, that's maybe my biggest problem with it, is that when, on occasion, it does go 
full throttle with the action it teeters on the edge of this is a bit ridiculous where it just just not not actually that's not fair it just indulges in action cliches which i think are better suited for a different kind of film mm. yeah yeah very very enjoyable and despite what i just said when they are doing that i am enjoying it when yeah. you do see the the guns and the fighting but the uh, the the effects are fantastic. Very the good. music, as you say, is great. It's, there's a really interesting somber tone to the movie, which uh, is refreshing. Uh, it starts off uh, weirdly enough. The last movie ended. If you got up and left at the end of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, you may have missed the beginnings of the uh, end of of Mankind because uh, there was a post credits thing uh, where we see the simian flu begin to spread around the globe. Uh, and this begins with a kind of catching up of the, the last yeah. 10 years uh, with lovely Michael Giacchino music and it's, it's rather affecting and horrifying and uh, sets up the the playing field nicely. Uh, and I really like the fact that it's confident and stays with the apes for about 15 minutes at the beginning of the movie. It feels almost like a, a, There Will Be Blood or 2001 in a weird way, not 2001 in terms of apes throwing bones into the air, but in terms of the confidence to stay silent and the confidence yeah. to stay with it without cutting away the humans. When the humans enter the movie, they're fine, they're good, Carrie Russell, good, Jason Clark, good, uh, Gary Oldman, good, but it does feel a little bit Oh, could we just get back to the apes, please? Yeah, can, we, the, can we do that? The humans, like that the humans are underserved and women are underserved massively. There are there are two female roles to all intents and purposes and neither of them amount to anything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's disappointing in an otherwise very thoughtful film. But yeah, I mean, the the, the humans are, are less developed and, and maybe that's a weakness, but I think you still get the sense that there's there's kind of parallels between human and ape society and I think that the structure mm. of the story really supports that, which is great. I think they're trying to say something with the fact that the humans <coughs> are less developed mm. <laughs> mm. think mm. about it what about it though mm. Interesting. Uh, there's also quite a bit of that mm. humans apes a eh? are we that different mm. Mm. are we mm. we're not so different you and i mm. <laughs> uh yeah i thought the uh this is much better than the first movie um i wasn't as sold in the first movie as everyone else was but were you guys the better or i i like the first movie a lot actually i, I was really surprised by it. i went in with very low expectations mm-hmm. and and came up with a quite high opinion of it i do agree this is better though mm. i agree Okay. So better than the first movie, one of the best blockbusters of the summer, definitely up there with Edge of Tomorrow and X-Men Days of Future Past for us. And it's good to see it doing really well in the States. Four stars for Dawn of a Planet of the Apes. And in case you want to hear more uh, of us talking about Dawn of a Planet of the Apes, there is a larger Swatter special that will be going up on Monday. There's lots to talk about. It's very, very, as I say, thinky film. So. Yes, very, very. It's a good chat with myself, Helen, Ali, and Dan Jolin, our resident apesologist, and Matt Reeves as well, the director of Dawn, uh, who will be spilling lots of spoiler stuff as well. And when I said there's not a lot to cinema this week, it really, it really isn't a lot of stuff at the cinema. There's uh, two very good documentaries if you want to check it out. There's a great documentary called I Am Defined, which is about divine John Waters muse uh, which is which is very uh, jaw dropping in many places and uh, there's also there's also Supermensch The Legend of Shep Gordon which is a documentary about a, a chap who was uh, essentially a, a music Bengali a, a PR genius he, uh, called Shep Gordon who's still alive uh, and it's it's about his life and his work and it's directed by Mike Myers yes Mike Myers and it's very good we get four stars to both of those movies so do check them out and Helen you mentioned uh, Some Like It Hot at the beginning of the uh, the podcast it's re-released this Yay. week and uh, we gave that let me just double check this yes five stars well done for five stars <laughs> yeah I just had to double check yeah if you haven't seen it absolutely 100% do it is still one of the funniest movies ever made and of course has the f- greatest last line ever oh, so um, I disagree with that well you're wrong but carry on I'm not but hey no, yeah 
That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Next week is Comic-Con in San Diego. Most of us will be over in San Diego for Led Helen. It's going to be flying somewhere else around the world. Uh, but the podcast will continue on as is, jogging along like an unstoppable juggernaut of movie chat. And you'll be in the safe hands of uh, Ali and Phil Desemlian next week. Shoot straight, you bastards. Shoot straight. Uh, until then, it is goodbye from Helen. Bye-bye. It's goodbye from Ali. Goodbye. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to try for some more Liverpool tickets. It may say it's sold out, but I'm going to try and click refresh anyway. (laughs) See you next week.